on last Lord's Day, we addressed that issue of who God is and Paul presenting the character of God, the nature of God, the being of God, command of God to the Athenians. And this morning I want to pick up on that same reaction. Address it from a little different issue to answer a question that comes up with us in terms of how God presented um, His message to the Athenians and uh, His understanding of who God is and the responsibility for God. Uh, Some have brought up addiction and uh, Paul's theology here in terms of where he, uh, how he shares with the, Athen- with the Athenians and how he speaks to us in Romans. So I want to try to address that this morning. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Paul's Applied Theology. And remember, he arrives there in Athens, this uh, pearl of the ancient world. And upon arrival, Scripture tells us that he's provoked. He's provoked to anger. So I invite you there to look with me, beginning in verse 22, and we'll read through 31 and see what Paul does with this anger that is provoked within him. Beginning in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind, to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are His children. Being then the children of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or any image formed by the art or thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead." Now, Paul arrives there in Athens and Scripture tells us that his heart is provoked. He's provoked to anger. He's angry about the one true God not being glorified in this ancient city. And he's angered about the lostness of the Athenians. And so we would give uh, language to this kind of anger. We would call it a righteous indignation or a righteous anger. So he's angry about the lostness, and he's angry about the one true God not receiving proper glory there. And so what does he do with this anger? Well, he rightly goes to them and begins to interact with them and preach the gospel. He carries the gospel to them. Now, he does this in the market square where there's a common debate there among the philosophers. But at some point... This new doctrine that Paul is bringing has stirred them up. And so they sort of, uh, um, in a a kind way, tell Paul he has to go before the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus Areopagus is that old hill, Mars Hill, there in Athens. But it's really referring to here to the council that meets in that location. The city council, the lead philosophers of the time, and they are there to really guard the integrity of the pantheon of false gods that are worshipped there in Athens. And they're there to determine and kind of bear weight on and make judgment upon any new doctrine that shows up in town. So Paul is brought before them to give an offense, a defense, if you will. 
And they had to test His doctrines. Now, you might think of it this way. It would be like one of us being invited to speak to the faculty of Harvard, uh, Harvard University Law School about the meaning of life. Great opportunity, but a hostile audience. But Paul goes, and he speaks before them, and he preaches to them the truth of the one truth. He does so in this environment saturated with the worship of false gods. And that's the real anguish there, right? That's what provokes Paul's heart, and that's, what is, is, that's the anguish that's, that's living there in Athens. It's just hanging over Athens. The worship of false gods. Because the worship of false gods can never satisfy the soul. The longing of the heart of fallen man is always longing for the truth of the one true God. And where there's an effort on fallen man to try to put something else in that spot, there's always that rub. There's always that anguish. There's always that lack of satisfaction to try to insert anything into that God-shaped hole, if you will, in the heart of fallen man. That's the anguish of idolatry. And that's what Paul confronts head on. Augustine once said, Our heart is restless until it rests in you. Speaking of the one true God, and rightly said. Well, that brings me to... uh, the first point this morning, and that is that mankind possesses an inescapable knowledge of God. And we see that in verses 22 through 27. Mankind possesses an inescapable knowledge of God. So the truth about God is available to man. But fallen man holds this truth in unrighteousness. Now this is a theological principle that we must hold. This is a biblical principle that we must hold and try to understand. So Paul begins with a very respectful greeting. It's not flattery, but it's very respectful. Notice how he starts there. He stands in the midst of the Areopagus, and remember that's primarily just talking about in the midst of the council. Probably the council surrounds him. That was not an uncommon setting or context in the ancient world where you would be placed in the middle and the council would surround you and you'd be questioned and you'd be given opportunity to defend yourself in that regard. But he says to them, men of Athens. Now that's very respectful. And he says, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. And that just reminds me up front of first verse 15. There where Peter reminds us as Christians going and carrying the gospel into a fallen world. He says, uh, first sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. How important that is. And always be ready to make an offense to everyone who asks you and give an account of the hope that is in you. And then he finishes this way, though. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Just up front, it's something for us to think about in terms of application. Man, is it not so easy to go in with arrogance? Is it not? I mean, here, Paul was was angered. Again, it's it's a righteous anger. He has a right kind of anger. He's angry about the fallenness of Athens and that the glory of God is being withheld by His creatures, created in His image. But He doesn't go in there heavy-handed. He doesn't go in there with arrogance, throwing His weight around, being irreverent. He's gentle. He's provoked, but His anger is under control. He didn't belittle them. He He approached them with respect. And so for us... We should should consider our approach in light of how Paul approaches the Athenians here. It's easy to strike out in bitterness, isn't it? It's easy to do. It's easy to take an arrogant stance. That's easy. And my, how often I can think back on my personal life as a Christian with with every good intention of carrying the gospel, but in in bitterness and self-righteousness belittling those who I desire to reach. But Paul didn't do that. So he's very respectful up front, and it's important for us. Again, we must draw a clear line on the universal reality of sin, and we must call for repentance, but we must do so with respect. 
a very respectful approach here. And Paul goes on there and he says, verse 23, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. Now, Paul has spotted a little symbol of their religion, which is a litany of false worship of false gods, a pantheon of false gods. And so he spotted this uh, little area where it's been designated as a possibility of a god that's out there somewhere among the pantheon of uh, other false gods that they might not know, but just in case, we'll cover for it. So here's to the unknown god. And Paul says, this concept of the unknown god is a, a confirmation and admitting of your, capa- or your lack of capacity to know who you worship. So this, that you, this, this possibility of the unknown out here, I proclaim to you, I take this and proclaim to you the one true God. And when he does so, he doesn't open up a text from the Old Testament. Paul doesn't do that here to the Athenians. It wouldn't mean anything to them. Now we know there was a Jewish contingency there and they may have God-fears in that community that had affixed themselves to the Jewish population that was living there. But for the most part, by and large, this is a pagan culture. And these men had no respect for the Old Testament and no knowledge of it, really. So what Paul does is he takes this opportunity, this, this, uh, uh, this reality that he sees in their culture, and he lays hold of that, the unknown God. And that becomes his text. So he doesn't go to the Old Testament Scripture. He takes his text right there from their culture, from the unknown God. And Paul notes their sincerity and their religious fervor. But the altar is an admission it's an admission of their ignorance of God, and that's right where he starts. It becomes the entry. It becomes the, the contact, if you will. And Paul begins there to share the gospel. So note this also. Unbelievers are always, always opening up opportunities for us to share the gospel. They'll give you an opening. Unbelievers always give you an opening within their context. It's just a matter of us seeing them and looking for these openings and being prepared to step in and engage them with the gospel. So pray for spiritual eyes to see them, to see these openings, to share the truth in our culture, and pray for boldness and wisdom to follow through in sharing the gospel. That's exactly what we see Paul doing here. What you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. What you worship as the unknown, I fill in. The dim shadow there with bright, glorious light. Get over to verse 30 and listen to the language here. Because here's where Paul's going. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So he's going to call them to repentance. And that's important for us to keep in mind here. But he said, now he's saying to them, hey, there was a time where there was little light. What was known about the one true God was confined primarily to a small community and those who had affixed themselves to that community, which we would call God-fearers in the Old Testament. But now, Christ has come. Now the gospel has been opened much wider, if you will, to the Gentile world. And he's saying, now this one true God who had every right, all His holiness, to wipe you off the face of the map has left you has given you life and kindness. He feeds you every day. He takes care of you. He sustains you. He's given you your continued health. And now, He brings you to the answer to the question of the the unknown God. Now I proclaim to you who that really is. Now, God has called all men everywhere to repentance. And He's going to continue forward and tell them of the character of the one true God, and call them to repentance. So 
So the ignorance of God is really the spiritual condition of the Athenians. That's the spiritual condition of the, the culture there. They have an ignorance of God. But yet God is now declaring to all men, all people everywhere, that they should repent. That's Paul's message. So how does Paul square this language in this text, saying that now that all men everywhere are but knowing that the climate here is that they are ignorant of God. They don't know the one true God. They don't know who He is. So how does He call them to repent? Or we'll go one further. How does He square this with what He says in Romans chapter 1? Let's just look there for a moment and get a little flavor. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Because that which is not about God is evident within them. For God made it. For since the creation of the world, His eternal power to what has been made. Well, which is it? Do they know God? Or are they ignorant of God? What's Paul saying here? Well, Romans 1.21, again, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their, and their foolish hearts were darkened. As Paul moves on uh, through these verses here in Acts 17, and he begins to lay out to them the character of God. In verse 28, he does something very interesting. He points back to their poets, and we'll look at that a little later, but he points back to poets from their culture. Even your poets speak of the one true God. Now they do so in ignorance. They do so in a distorted way, but nonetheless they speak of the one true God. A quote from uh, the poet says, for we are also His children. And then Paul picks that up and in verse 29. He says, now being then the children of God, we ought not think of the divine nature as like gold or silver or stone or any image formed by the art and thought of man. Now do you see an important word in there? In verse 29? This is why Paul is going to be able to call them to Repentance. When just prior he said, you don't even know your worship. You're, you're ignorant of the one true God. You don't know about the one true God. You're ignorant of this God. Now I'm going to proclaim them to you. I'm going to proclaim God to them and then call them to repentance if they're ignorant of the one true God. And how does he say in Romans that man knows God? For the knowledge of God is within us and is evident to us in creation all around us. So in Romans, Paul says, the knowledge of God is in us and around us. And we're without excuse. And he continues with that same theology here with the Athenians. And we see it sneak up on us a little bit there in verse 29. Don't miss it. What does he say there? We ought not think that God at the divine nature like gold or silver or stone, or any image formed in the art, by the art, a thought of man. Do you see the art there? That's a responsibility. In other words, you know better. Deep down in your heart, although it's hidden by your darkness and your depravity, deep down in your heart, you know there's Creator God that created you, and you're suppressing it. And you ought not, but you do. So he lays a responsibility on them right there. You ought not think this way about the divine nature. So that's a moral obligation that Paul's put upon them. By, uh, that's a moral obligation that he's calling them to the reality of the fact that they've been created by God and they know this. Deep down, they know it. And they ought not have such idolatrous thoughts. Look with me a little further down in verses 30 and 31. Listen to the language here. Therefore, 
Again, having looked, uh, overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men and all people everywhere they should repent. Why? Because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now, it's not that God accepts their sin. Far from it. It's just this, this mercy that He's declaring to them that God did not judge you already and kill you. That's the goodness of God. So Paul calls them to repent, indicating their guilt. Look, you're blessed that God hasn't wiped you off the planet in righteous judgment. Now He's calling you to repent. Repent. So their ignorance is blameworthy. We see the the connection here. So there's not a contradiction in what Paul Paul is saying in Romans compared to what he's saying here in Acts 17. We see that the two connect. His theology is the same. They're ignorant of God, but their ignorance is still blameworthy before a holy God. So if you will, they're not off the hook in their ignorance. James 4.17 says this, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, it is to him, to, do it, uh, to him it is sin. And so Paul's saying here, you know the right thing to believe, but you don't. And in that ignorance, you're guilty. In the dark recesses of their hearts, they knew the right thing to believe, but they would not. And Paul says to them, your God that created you holds you accountable. You are guilty before God. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. Let's look there. Because that which was known about God is evident within them. Remember? For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of His world, uh, since the creation of the world, His, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So general revelation. The general evidence, the creation around us, the moral reality within us, that reality indicates a knowledge of God within us and around us. Mankind has a natural, inescapable knowledge of God manifest to us. It's there. It's inescapable. And the result is culpable Ignorance. So the ignorance that Paul is talking about here concerning the Athenians and on any corner of the planet in any generation is culpable ignorance. God made His divine nature perceived through the created order. So the unbeliever is morally responsible for his unbelieving thought. Every unbeliever, everywhere, all the time. There is no exception here. Every created being, every human being created in the image of God and every generation all over the planet has this same reality. We know God and we suppress the truth about that knowledge and we're guilty. We're culpable for that. We're responsible for our unbelieving thought. Thus, Paul, in the context here, asserts the existence of God. He just proclaims it. He just says, hey, look, this unknown God that you're suppressing, I'm going to tell you who it is. So he does this without without any proof, without any systematic proof, without any evidence. He just says, this is who God is. And I give you on last week we went into detail about how he expressed and characterized the one true God before them. So he just proclaims God. So he doesn't worry about proving this. He doesn't worry about uh, um, uh, proclaiming, uh, uh, going anywhere in terms, of, uh, in terms of a systematic proof. He just proclaims it. Now, he could have reasoned with them, couldn't he? He certainly could have done that. And it's not wrong. I'm not saying, please don't hear me say that it's always wrong to, to try to give uh, a proof for God or, or evidence of God. There may be a context where that's beneficial to you and it's helpful and it's not innately wrong, but it's not necessary. It's not mandatory. 
And Paul doesn't do it here. Now, he could have, he could have reasoned with them. He could have reasoned from cause and effect. He could have reasoned from intelligent design. He could have. I mean, we could, take, we could go into our culture and say, you know, uh, this um, uh, uh, primordial ooze that we supposedly just uh, eventually morphed out of over time has a problem. Where did the ooze come from? You know, if we're just stardust and there was just this big combustion and, and over time all that rolled out and it's continuing to roll out, well, where did the stardust come from? Every effect has a, say it with me, cause. So he could have. He certainly could have, you know, argued from irreducible complexity, from intelligent design. He could have, but he didn't. And he didn't have to, nor do you and I. He just proclaimed the glorious one true God to this pagan culture. And he did so rightly. And he held them accountable for their professed ignorance. Open profession being, here's an altar to an unknown God. This is saying, we don't know. That's a big, fat, we don't know. And he doesn't let them off the hook because God doesn't let mankind off the hook. His word says very clearly, we do know. And that's very important for us as followers of Christ as we carry the gospel into this fallen world. Man does know. And we can't let them off the hook. Now again, that can never come in arrogance and self-righteousness and haughtiness. But it must come theologically. We cannot let them off the hook per se in terms of ignorance of the one true God. Paul here simply proclaims the existence of God. And now, how can, this, how can Paul, as he just simply proclaims the existence of God uh, in a simple proclamation, how can he expect the Athenians to accept this? How? He just, he just declares this to be so. How could he expect them to accept it? We know that some do, right? We look further in the, in the text here. Not, not many, but some do. And that's not the point. Many. That's God's sovereign Act among mankind. God saves. God must quicken their heart from life to death. God must open their spiritually blind eyes. But Paul comes with a message, and he doesn't have to have a context of proving the, the, the existence of God. He comes with a proclamation of God. So he doesn't, he doesn't have to uh, tell them, explain to them who God is, or defend who God is. He just has to remind them. That's what he's doing. He's reminding them of who God is. And how can he explain? in repentance and faith. Some did. How can he expect that? Well, he can't. He was the guy that the Holy Spirit quickened to actually pen those words. He believes in Romans 1. That's why he can expect so. Do you believe in Romans 1? Then you can expect the same. He knows that Gentiles possess a fundamental awareness of the character and command of the living God. He knows that, and so do you. If you're here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ and you believe the Word of God, so do you. So he didn't need to have the existence of God proven to them. We didn't need that. It's not necessary. Now, as we continue to think this through, this text indicates to us why those who have never heard the gospel are guilty and condemned before God. Isn't that the tough question? Isn't that the looming, emotionally agonizing question? Well, the biblical answer is this. They're rightly condemned before a holy God. They're guilty. All mankind stands guilty before a holy God, whether he or she has heard the gospel or not. Now, that's a heavy theological truth, but that's a biblical fact. They're guilty. Without the gospel, they are rightly condemned to a literal hell by their holy Creator because they're guilty before their Creator God. And He's just and right to condemn them to a literal hell. Now, the antagonist, antagonistic question comes up, right? That's not fair. 
That's not fair. And the biblical answer to that response is this. The world's ignorance towards God is blameworthy ignorance. That's what God gives us. Now, that not not be emotionally satisfying to us, but that's the flat-out truth. That's what God gives us to respond to. That's not fair. And God comes back in His holy word and says, that's the reality. Mankind's is blameworthy ignorance. And you say, in the far reaches of the, small, uh, the smallest little tribe out in the middle of the Amazon, and I've been there many times, that's remote. That is remote. And the answer is yes. That's God's unique creatures created in His image. And they're created with a moral of their Creator. And And in their darkness, they suppress that knowledge. It's blameworthy ignorance. So all men have a knowledge of God and His law. And they have it and they hold it in suppression. Why? Because of their sin. That's why. And they deserve to go to hell because those who sin do not deserve otherwise. And that's all mankind. We're all fallen in our sin. And here's the biblical truth. God just does not owe us a gospel presentation. He doesn't. If you're here and you've heard the gospel and you've responded, this is God's mercy extended to you that you did not deserve. That's God's mercy on your life. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve to have a chance to be saved. I mean, isn't that kind of the American notion that everybody deserves a chance isn't that, you know, isn't that equality that somehow morphs over into equity once fallen man gets a hold of it? But that's the notion, right? We, should all, we all deserve a chance. And where there's equality among fallen men, it, it, it belongs in the other camp. None of us deserve to have a chance to be saved. But God has been gracious to some and granted us salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What a Savior. What a glorious Savior. And it's just, it's just for God to judge men in light of that knowledge, whether they hear of Christ or not. That's what we have to reckon with emotionally here. We, we take the words of grammar, we take the grammar context of Scripture and just God gives it to us. That's what we have to reckon with. God is righteous and just to judge them for that knowledge, the knowledge that is within them, all the knowledge of His created order is enough, Romans 1 tells us, to, con- to condemn man before a holy God, whether they hear of Christ or not. And the fact is, the gospel is not revealed in nature, right? They're not going to hear of Christ by looking up and seeing all the beauty and majesty and design and order. And now, even now that we can see, uh, I mean, like no other generation before, we can see in the outer reaches of the universe. We can see the detail and the order that screams Creator God. But that is not enough. Man is not going to turn to Christ by natural revelation, by general revelation. That's not enough. That's enough to condemn man. But it's not enough to bring them to in Jesus Christ. So, the gospel is not revealed in nature. And this is very important for us because this biblical theology that man is guilty, man has a knowledge of God, every man, everywhere, that's, and, and he suppresses it. And it's enough to him before a holy God. That theology and that that. Salvation can't come through any other means but the gospel. That theology is the necessary theology that drives Christian missions, is it not? If we don't have this hard theology, we don't have missions. We don't have a real meaning for missions. We don't have a real purpose for missions. 
We don't have a real passion for missions. And we don't have a life or death cause for mission work. I mean, what's the use? Why go and die somewhere to bring the gospel to some other people that we don't know? Why? If they might stumble upon it in nature, if some fallen creature out there uh, somewhere in, in, in some other culture, some other context, might somewhere in, in a fallen nature suppressing God one day look up at the wonder and beauty of His creation and bow down and repent and follow Jesus Christ? If that's true, why go? Why not just stay here, sit on the gospel, and live the American dream? Why not treat the gospel uh, uh, in that context? That's just part of the American dream. We just take the gospel like everything else and we can it up, can all we can, sit on the can. Why go die? This biblical theology is the mandate for Christian missions. It's the mandate. Men will never be saved without hearing the gospel. Amen? We have to reckon with that. Men will never be saved without hearing the gospel. And how will they hear without a preacher? Isn't that what Scripture tells us? How will they hear without a preacher? How? They don't deserve the gospel, but they need the gospel. We didn't deserve the gospel, but we needed the gospel. And the church is flat out commanded to take the gospel to the nations. It's our command. It's not an option for us. It's a command. It's a mandate on our lives by our Lord. And the fact that unbelievers will be condemned forever without the gospel, should keep the urgency of missions seared in our hearts and our minds. Without the gospel, no one will come to Christ. That should sear the gospel mandate in our minds. That brings us lastly to my, to my second point here. And this, again, is just by, by way of me attempting to kind of uh, lynch these things together. And to, 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 really, to really root this theological truth in our minds and our hearts. And here I want you to see that in verses 28 through 31, that mankind suppresses the inescapable knowledge of God. It's suppressed. So we've talked about that. We've, 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 I've spoken the word out there, this, this, this notion of, of suppressing. But let's think about this more fully in our context of, of what we have here in these verses. All men suppress a divine revelation. Or, excuse me, all men possess a divine revelation which they suppress. All men possess a divine revelation which they suppress. So look there in verse 28. Now he points to the poets. And um, the two poets here that, that Paul's referring to, they're, they're much prior to this group uh, there at the Areopagus that he's speaking to in present day. So these poets are... are, are prior to this time, quite, a, quite a, uh, a time before, but nonetheless they've had a great effect on the culture, and so they're well-known poets. Epimenides and Aratus are the two poets. And what they say here, the, two, uh, the language that he pulls from, that was from these poets that the Areopagus would certainly be familiar with, is this. They say that in him... We live and move and exist. So now that part, it doesn't get, we don't get that from our English, from the translation in the English, but that's also a quote from these poets. So that's a quote. And then what's more clear to us as it comes to us in the English here is, for we also, in verse 28, for we also are his children. Both are quotes from these poets. In him, we live and move and exist. For we also are his children. Now, Epimenides and um, Aratus are talking about Zeus. Zeus was like the, the top dog god in the pantheon. So they're referring to Zeus. But the way they refer to Zeus really speaks in a distorted way of unknown god that they have marked off there in their culture that they know about but are suppressing. It really speaks to the one true creator god. That's who they're really speaking about. So even if fallen man, fallen man has an awareness of God, and even though it's suppressed 
Even though that knowledge is present, we've used it. I've tried to use it several times in here. Uh, 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 an illustration that I, I heard from James White. Um, like it's suppressed like a big one of those big colorful beach balls that you get in the kids get in a pool and they try to roll over top of it and just wrestle that thing down underneath the water and it just keeps popping back up. Wrestle it down underneath the water and it keeps popping back up. So it's, it's that. We're suppressing that, that knowledge of God. We're trying to hold it down in our fallenness. But it keeps rising up. It keeps rising up because it's, it's, it's inescapable. And here we run into context like this where it leaks out. It just kind of slips out, doesn't it? It slipped out in their poetry. Now they're talking about Zeus. But the things they're saying, the, the attributes they're ascribing to Zeus are really attributes of the one true God. And it just slips out in all our fallenness. And that's what we find here. And Paul jumps on it immediately. And he says, man, look. Let me rightly apply these quotations for you. They belong to the true and living God. And now we think, well, how can Paul cite these poets as supporting his teaching? He's done this before. When uh, he was at, Con- at Iconium there in, in Acts 14, verse 17, listen to his language. He said, and speaking of God, he said, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So again, just the reality of his creation is enough to testify of him and it's enough for us to know of him, but we're suppressing it. And then the more chilling reality in Romans 1.18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And there it's just spelled out to us very clearly. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Fallen mankind suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. So, this possessing of the knowledge of God is part of being created in the image of God. It belongs to us. Mankind cannot get rid of it. I want you to understand that. As you go out and you care, God calls you into You are talking to people that possess the knowledge of God, but how much they deny it, and they can't get rid of it. Your poets freaked out. It just oozed out in their poetry. Again, they're speaking about Zeus, but what they're saying about Zeus is of the one true God that they're suppressing in their hearts. That's why they use this language. And it's still true today. This truth remains within us. At all times, fallen man, everywhere, borrows notions from the suppressed knowledge of God. And they smuggle it into their pagan worldview. We see it all the time. It's just a matter of us looking for it so that we might rightly, in the right attitude, respond to it. I thought of uh, an interview that I listened to, not, I didn't listen to much of it, so I have to be careful there. I can't give a full context of it. But I'm listening to a, a, a small part of Oprah Winfrey's interview with Meghan Markle. And now we, uh, Oprah Winfrey is known in our culture, and so I don't feel out of uh, place saying that she is uh, very much a proponent of your truth, a subjective truth. What might be true for you, brother, is true for you, and that's your truth and you live by it, but I have my truth, and I live by it, and we have subjective truths, and they all make contradict, but we just all accept one another's uh, subjective truths, and we just all get along. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and, and they're all subjective, and they have, they're, there's no objective truth. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. So Oprah's been a great proponent of, of this ideology for a number of years, and it's, and it's out in the public forum, and, and she's made no bones about it, and it's obvious. Now, in this interview, uh, same Oprah is now comes up on a point. There's, there's a contention in the interview where there's a question of possible racism. And at that moment, Oprah rightly takes this notion of the evils of racism and makes it an objective that all people should respond to the same way, acknowledge it, and be repulsed by it across the board objectively. And I was just marveled by that, uh, how quickly she could let that leak out. That's a reflection of the suppression of God. And I pray that that might have dawned on Oprah because that's stealing from the Christian worldview. I had a friend of mine just the other day, uh, his, 
mom passed and uh, they were childhood friends and I was over at their house often and, you know, just um, enjoying childhood and, and the kindness of your friends' mothers and all the sandwiches and snacks and all those things that come along with, with that environment. And uh, so I'd, I'd written to him through Facebook and he had, as I noticed, uh, as I was trying to contact him, I noticed that he had written a little uh, summary of kind of just some highlights of his uh, life and his mom's just a little uh, eulogy, if you will, uh, personal eulogy there on Facebook. But sadly, he said this. Speaking of mom, his mom, she, he said, she believed, uh, she believed in God in the broadest sense that it belonged to everyone. Now there again, my friend has made an acknowledgement of God, but a complete ignorant statement concerning God. There's not a knowledge of the reality of the one true living God. But the truth slips out in spite of the sin and ignorance of God. There's still a concept. And that's always true among fallen men. There's a concept. The the truth that is suppressed. It's not that there is no knowledge. It's there is suppressed knowledge of truth. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. And when when the truth is held in unrighteousness, you get claims like this. My mom, speaking of my mom, she believed in God in the broadest sense that it belonged to everyone. Now that's not the God of the Bible, but that's a notion of the one true God. It's a false notion. There's an idol set up right there somewhere beside of that unknown God just in case. But nonetheless, it slips out. They're still aware of God and they're being created. Fallen man strives to philosophically eliminate the one true God. Why? Why? Why would you hear language like this? Because fallen man is sinful. And we desire to live sinful lives. So we reason God out of the equation, right? It's just that simple. We reason God out. Psalm 10, verses 11 through 13. Now this is speaking of the sinner, how he reasons God out. Listen to the language of the psalmist here. The sinner, he says to himself, God has forgotten, right? It's for everyone. In the broadest sense, God has forgotten. He's hidden His face. He will never see it. Oh, how we want to coddle our sins and just convince ourselves that the omnipotent God, the omniscient God, will never see or know the depths of reality of my sin. Oh, Lord. Oh, God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. There it is. Isn't that the deception of fallen man? He's not really going to judge me if he's out there somewhere in some possible existence in some alternate universe somewhere. He doesn't see it. And if he did, he's not really going to judge me. He's for everyone. He's that it thing. If he's there. And Paul perceived this suppression of truth an awareness of truth. And he appealed to them. He appealed to the reflections of the pagans as their reflections appealed to the sovereignty of the one true God relating to His creatures. This is how fallen creatures deal with truth. They suppress it. But truth still slips out. It still slips out. Albeit in distorted ways, it still slips out. Why? Because the knowledge of God is given to them by their God. That's why. Since we try to think about this reality and we try to think about the pressing necessity of missions upon us as God's people, fallen man possesses the knowledge of God and suppresses that knowledge. That's a doctrine we have to carry into this world as we carry the gospel. That's the only doctrine that's going to move us to an urgency concerning missions. Thus, the worship of the unknown God and the culpability of such false worship 
belongs to all fallen men everywhere. This is why sending missionaries is vital. It's vital. It's vital to the salvation of fallen mankind. This is God's way. This is God's world, and this is God's way that He spreads the gospel. It must be the gospel. There is no other way for fallen man to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel must be carried to the nations. Until God moves from the perspective of the, of the unbeliever, until God moves from obscure and unknown, or known in the broadest sense, to being known as the holy, just, omnipotent creator who is judged, who will judge overall, until then, all will not understand the gospel. They will not. They will not understand the gospel until they have this light of the knowledge and the character of God imposed upon them by the gospel truth. God must be seen as the internal owner of all creation who reigns over creation and floods creation with His presence and imposes His will upon the universe and will judge the souls of men. That's the true God. That must be carried in superimposed ignorance that is to fallen man. Now, if you're here and you've had much light, or if you're here and you've had little light, if you've had the light of today, the call is to repentance. If you're here and you do not know, Jesus Christ, as your personal Lord and Savior, today is a day to turn and repent and believe on Christ. There is one God, one hope, one Savior, Jesus Christ. Repent and believe on Him. Turn to Christ. Cry out to God, and you will find a perfect Savior. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You uh, for our time this morning. We ask that uh, You would take these truths and you would uh, seal them deep in our hearts that we might know the reality of your word, the reality of your character, your being, the hope of your gospel, uh, the urgency of the proclamation of your gospel, and that we might feel the pain and, um, of lost and fallen man, that we might uh, feel the weight of the lostness of those around us, and that more importantly, we might feel the weight of the majesty of your glory that is being suppressed and fallen man, that you might move us forth for the gospel, for your glory, and for the good of your church, and for the hope of mankind. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.